Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message, which is brought to you by Pastor Todd Roberts. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. Good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. Thanks for braving the rain. Glad you're here. All right. Well, I want to start with a question this morning. Um, how many of you love horses? Some, some, okay, some of you, some of you kind of reluctantly, shyly holding up your hands. Okay, let, let me ask you another question. How many of you have ever had to look after or care for a horse? Maybe you've owned a horse, you're looking after it on behalf of someone. So I see about four or five hands. Okay, all right. I personally think horses are fascinating animals. And one of my favorite memories when I was a kid was when my family took a long weekend and we went up to a ranch in the mountains near our home and we spent the whole weekend horseback riding. And um, the highlight of that for me was when our ranch hand that was leading us through this, once he saw that we were comfortable on our horses, uh, he allowed us to gallop our horses. I was probably 10, maybe 11 years old, and I'll never forget riding at full speed on this animal. And at one point, we were galloping through kind of some like, you know, semi-woodland area, and the horse, like without me even control, I mean, you know, I was 10 years old, so I'm not going to control this thing, but it was just doing its own thing. And at one point, it jumped over this big log that was on the ground, and I, you know, thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever done in my life. And I still remember it to this day, and I've always loved horses, been fascinated with them ever since. So it was a no-brainer for me when a friend of mine here in Sheffield uh, asked if I could watch or, or uh, look after her horse for her for about a week while she was on holiday. And I was like, oh, this is great. I get to be, because, you know, I hadn't really been around horses that much. I just hadn't had that opportunity throughout my life. And so I was like, you know, kind of excited to get to look after this horse. I mean, how hard could it be, right? Quite hard, as it turns out. I found out that taking care of a horse is a lot of work. They are high-maintenance animals. These things, I mean, you've got to feed them with different kinds of feed. You've got to water them. You've got to groom them. You've got to uh, uh, muck out their stables every day, and you've got to you know, put new hay in. And then I discovered in this process that I'm very allergic to hay. And then you've got you to uh, take them out to pasture every day, and you've got to bring them back in. And you've got to like uh, cl- uh, uh, clean out their hooves with, uh, from the mud and grit and stuff that get accumulated in their hooves. Otherwise, they get infections in them and stuff. And, and this horse, you know, I was doing all this, and this horse had the audacity to, while I'm cleaning mud out of its hooves, serving it, it kicked me. Now, like, it wasn't very bad. It just kind of hit my leg and glanced off. But this thing, like, I realized, these horses, man, they, they are high maintenance. I have no desire. I realized, like, you know, that owning a horse is a full-time hobby, and I think it was helpful to have this experience because it made me realize that if I ever want to, you know, I have this romanticized version of horses, and they are beautiful, majestic animals, but also you, you got to count the cost of owning a horse. And I think that's usually a good principle in life, right? You know, we've got to count the cost of things before we undertake any major thing in life, whether it's a job or going to university or getting married or having kids or uh, doing some sort of physical activity like running a marathon or something like that. We've got to count the cost 
of what it means to do those things. It's just a, a good principle in life to count the cost beforehand. And in the passage we're looking at today, Jesus is asking us to count the cost of following him. Now, last week, I began a new series that, uh, uh, on being a disciple of Jesus. And we talked about the fact that the primary effect that Christianity is meant to have on our lives is that it's meant to make us look like Jesus. I mean, that's, that if Christianity is going to do anything to us, it's going to help us become like Jesus. And the primary way, the process that God uses to help transform us from the person we were before to becoming like Jesus is discipleship. And we talked about the fact that discipleship is not just this optional thing for, for those that, that, want, that are, that are uh, uh, extra zealous and wanting to grow in their relationship with God. It's not something that you do as an, after you become a believer and then you decide, you know what, I want to be a disciple. I want to get discipled. By its very definition, being a Christian means that you are a disciple. You are a disciple of Jesus. And that word disciple, it's kind of a weird word. You know, we only really use it in the context of church culture. Maybe a cult might use that word. It's a, it's a little bit of a weird word. So maybe a better way of, of thinking of it is the word apprentice. Being a disciple is kind of like being an apprentice. You know, just as an apprentice studies under a master tradesman to learn a trade and then before, before going out on their own, we as followers of Jesus are to spend our lives becoming or apprenticing with Jesus. And that apprenticeship, it's organized around three principles that I can see. It's about being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. Those three things are what the Christian life is all about. Be with, be like, and do what Jesus did. Now, we talked about the fact that also that Jesus invites everyone to be his disciples. This wasn't just restricted to the 12. Jesus invited the, uh, anybody who was around to, to become his disciples. And it's not just restricted to the people who were alive when Jesus was alive. It's uh, this invitation, by extension, ha has been extended to everyone to follow throughout history. Jesus told the 12 to go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, he's saying go into all nations throughout uh, throughout all future to come and invite them to become my disciples. And then he sent the Holy Spirit, which gives us access to Jesus at all times and in all places. That's what it means. So we're all dis uh, invited to become disciples of Jesus. You're invited today to become his apprentice. However, Jesus also, before you say yes to that invitation... We have to count the cost of becoming his disciple. And there are several accounts in the Gospels where Jesus cautions us to count the costs beforehand. <laughs> and this is like the opposite of what I would do if I was Jesus. I think Jesus needed a better PR guy. You know, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's just not good marketing to kind of, you know, normally when you, when you want somebody to buy into whatever you, you're offering them, you... Tell them the good side. You tell them, you know, what the positive aspects and qualities are of whatever it is that you're trying to sell them before you tell them the cost. The cost comes later. That's just marketing 101. But Jesus wasn't interested in selling us something. I mean, he wasn't, following him wasn't another 
self-help method to help you be happier and less anxious. It wasn't a get-rich-quick scheme. Jesus was telling us about a different kingdom, and he was warning us that there is a price to pay for wanting to step into the kingdom. So there's no way around it. Jesus was upfronted with that. He didn't do like bait-and-switch tactics. He, if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to be his apprentice, then we're going to have to count the cost of what that means for us. But what does that mean, to count the cost? Today, I want to look at four different meanings that, that Jesus highlights. There's probably much more than this, but I, I just wanted to look at four aspects of what it means to being a disciple or following Jesus. First of all, Jesus requires our ultimate allegiance. And he said this in several ways throughout the Gospels, but the passage that we're looking at today is Luke 14, and Stephen just read it for us, but I want to look at it again. It says this, a large crowd was following Jesus. Remember, in the New Testament, we talked about last week that there's really only two types of people as it relates to Jesus. There are the disciples of Jesus, and there is the crowd, and the disciples weren't just the 12. Jesus had hundreds of disciples, but the 12 were the apostles who were called out. They're the ones that he trained and sent out, but there were hundreds of disciples of Jesus. And then there was the crowd, and the crowd was full of all kinds of different people, people that were genuinely curious, people that just wanted an afternoon's entertainment, and people that were Jesus' enemies. And Jesus had huge crowds that would follow him around wherever he went because, you know, he, he was the, 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 the big thing in town that was happening, and they didn't have TVs and, and iPhones to distract him. So Jesus had huge crowds, and at one point he says to this huge crowd that was following, he says to them, if you want to be my disciple you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. We don't see that verse on too many inspirational posters, do we? Now, let me say at the outset here that Jesus does not mean for this statement to be taken literally. He's not saying that in order to be a real disciple of Jesus, you have to hate your spouse, that you have to hate your parents, that you have to hate your, your kids or your siblings. This is rabbinic hyperbole. He's stating things in extreme terms to get people's attention and, and convey the seriousness of his point, but it's not necessarily meant to be taken literally. Now, this might seem strange, but we actually do this all the time. We use hyperbole. You know, we say things like, I'm starving. You know, we know when we say that that, 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 that we don't actually mean that we are literally starving. We're just saying we're hungry. Or when we say something like, my feet are killing me, you know, we're just trying to say our feet are hurting, not that our feet have become these murderous entities intent on ending our lives, you know. We know that these things aren't meant to be taken literally. We have lots of those types of hyperboles. And in this passage, Jesus is using this rabbinic hyperbole to make a point about the priority of our loves, the priority of our affections. And he's saying that our first allegiance and our first affection belongs to him and to him alone, even above family. Now, to understand why he's making this point, you have to understand a little bit about family, the role of family in first century uh, uh, first century life in Israel, especially in the Galilee region where Jesus was from. Because our culture is 
less family or much less oriented, family oriented than, than Jesus' culture was. In his culture, family was everything. That was the unquestioned first allegiance to, for, for, for most people. And you got to understand that people in those days, they didn't just live with their nuclear family like we do. <laughs> they lived with, with basically a small village of family members. They could live in households of up to 200 members. And that's because, you know, when a son would get married, instead of moving away and buying a house and starting his own life somewhere else with his new bride, what, what he would do is when, when, when somebody got married, they would build a room, an add-on, an addition to his father's house. And that would be where he and his bride would live. So rather than moving away, they're just adding this bride to the family. And Jesus used this illustration or this, this practice to illustrate what heaven was going to be like. Remember what he says? He says, in my father's house, there's many rooms. And I go to prepare a place for you. This is the, this is, he's using this illustration to explain what heaven is like. And so the, as a result of all this, you have these massive households, massive families. It's like a small village that you're living with. And as a result, the family is your primary source of protection, of provision, of identity. They were your insurance policy. They were your retirement fund. They were, they were uh, who you worked together with to earn an income. They were the ones who you worked with to raise your kids. So in this family, or sorry, in this culture, family was everything, and loyalty to one family was the highest loyalty that was expected. And so then Jesus comes along and says, you got to hate your family. <laughs> wow, that must have been shocking. Now, now it does, we do need to say here that that word hate, it, it, it is a very strong word in modern English. The, the word there that's used, that's translated hate from the original Greek was a comparative term. It was saying that, you know, uh, that, that you that you love something more than something else, than someone else. It's, it's about like renouncing one choice in favor of another. So for example, you know, just because I say I choose a Coke over a Diet Coke, it doesn't mean, actually it does, that's not a good analogy because I do hate Diet Coke. Um, let's use a different analogy. So if I were to use, if I were to say I choose pizza instead of a burrito, that doesn't necessarily mean that I hate a burrito. It just means that I prefer to have the pizza. It's not quite as strong as the normal use of hate in our language, but Jesus is still making this point. He's saying, look, I, the, the, he's, he's making this comparison about devotion that's expected and assumed in that culture to one's family compared to devotion to him. And Jesus is saying, he's not saying that loving your family is bad or that it's wrong, but he's saying that Love me more than even you love your family, as important as that is to you. Love me more than whatever holds first place in your life. Love me more than whatever matters most to you. Now, this may not kind of resonate much in our culture, because as I said, we're not as family-oriented, but in some cultures around the world, this is just as relevant now as it was then. And, you know, when Lauren and I used to be missionaries in North Africa, working with Muslims, one of the most one of the things that I was most uncomfortable with in doing what I was doing and sharing the gospel with people that don't know Jesus is that if they chose to believe, it meant that they would probably lose their family. It meant that they would be rejected and ostracized and perhaps even persecuted and killed by their own family. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine just being cast out of your family 
because you've chosen a different faith. I mean, especially because a lot of these people were poor, and, and their family was their only real source of protection and provision. Would you be willing to pay that price? I mean, I'd like to hope that I would, but it's a big ask. And yet that's what Jesus is saying here is that, that your allegiance ultimately belongs to me even over your earthly family. He's saying if, if you're going to follow me, there are times when following me is going to put you in opposition to your family, and you're going to have to choose between pleasing me and pleasing your family. And this principle applies to not just our families, it applies to our friends, to our work colleagues, to our status and standing in community. There are times when we're going to have to choose pleasing Jesus over what's popular, over what's politically correct, over, uh, over what, what everybody else accepts in order to follow Jesus. That's part of the cost of being a disciple. So then Jesus continues in verse 27, and he says, and if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Now, I kind of want to double click on this verse here because this verse actually is the, the fourth time it comes up in the Gospels. It's actually mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It shows up actually earlier in Luke's Gospel. And I want to look at that, at that uh, uh, passage because it gives us much more detail about what he's saying here. So in Luke chapter 9, it says this, Jesus said to them all, to his disciples, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of his, the holy angels." So in this passage, Jesus is giving us some other aspects of what it means to count the cost of being his disciple. And counting the cost of being his disciple means that we have to deny ourselves. It says there, well, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. And, and that word there means to disregard your own interests. And the best analogy or illustration that I can come up with to help, to help uh, kind of explain what that means exactly is that it's kind of like when a soldier joins the military. When, when, when he or she joins the army or, or the Marines or whatever, they, they surrender a certain degree of autonomy. They're under orders. They, they do what they're commanded to do regardless of whether it's what they want to do. And they might be ordered to do something that's uncomfortable that's difficult, that's dangerous, but their wants and desires aren't what's guiding their actions anymore. They've submitted these desires to their commanding officers, and, and now they just do what they're ordered to do, not what they feel like. They live a life of self-denial. And living a life of self-denial, it's, it's not easy in our culture. You know, there, there's this sort of undercurrent in our culture that says that, 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 that any hindrance to indulging our desires and our rights and our appetites and our, our, they're, they're an infringement on our rights. But when we choose to follow Jesus, it means that we are choosing to follow him. We're choosing to deny ourselves. We're choosing to surrender everything we know isn't pleasing to him, including you know, things like sinful appetites and lusts. And that's what Paul was talking about in Galatians. He, he puts it this way. He says, those who belong to Christ 
Jesus have nailed their passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. So he's saying we're not governed by our desires and our appetites anymore. He's, not, he's saying we're not governed by our flesh. We're no longer living to, to gratify our sexual appetites or our greed or our pride or our anger or our bitterness. Instead, following Jesus means embracing a life of self-denial. It's something we need to recognize. But then he goes on. And he, he makes this famous statement, and, and he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily. Counting the cost of being a disciple of Jesus means that we have to take up our cross. Now, we've, if you've been around church for a while, you've heard that phrase, I'm sure. You know, we, we kind of make it a pious statement, oh, like, oh, that's my cross to bear, that kind of thing. But what does Jesus mean by this? What exactly is he instructing? Why is he saying this? Like, why is he telling us to carry around a means of execution with us? Because this whole idea, this imagery that he's using would have been a very familiar scene to Jews living under Roman-occupied Israel at that time. Because when somebody was sentenced to crucifixion, they would, as part of the punishment and humiliation of being crucified, was that you had to carry your crossbeam, which is called the, the uh, uh, patibulum, through the streets uh, with a jeering crowd around you. I mean, this is what happened to Jesus. That's what we're told happened to him. Is he's carrying his crossbeam through these streets. The crowd is jeering at him, mocking him. And, and the Jews would have been very familiar. They would have seen these scenes before. They would have known exactly what Jesus was saying when he brought this up. But it's still likely that this statement would have shocked them. You know, suddenly Jesus was telling them that in order to follow them, they've got to carry around this instrument of torture and execution with them. I mean, that would have been as weird to you as if I, would say, if I were to say to you today, hey, look, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to pick up your electric chair and follow me around. You've got to pick up your lethal injection and follow me. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight, so this statement makes sense. We know that Jesus is going to the cross where he's going to be crucified, but you got to understand the disciples had no idea what was about to happen. They didn't think Jesus was about to be crucified. Jesus had told them repeatedly, but it just kind of was like, you know, just straight over their heads. They did not get it. They were expecting, you know, they, they had a confirmation bias going. They were expecting the Messiah because they believed Jesus was the Messiah, and for, in their minds, the Messiah was there to overthrow Roman rule and to get rid of wicked King Herod and to reestablish the golden age of Israel. That's what they were expecting. It hadn't even crossed their mind that, they, that Jesus was going to suffer and die. And in fact, right before this passage, you know, Peter has said, you know, Jesus asks his disciples, who does everyone say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then, and then Jesus says, you're right. God's revealed this to you, and now the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem to be crucified and die. And Peter says, Lord, that's not going to happen to you. We're not going to let that happen. That's not, no, 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 no. You're here to, like, you know, bring in the golden age of Israel. And Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. He rebukes him really strongly because there was this, this, this belief that Jesus wasn't going to suffer, and yet he's telling them, following me means taking up your cross. So what did Jesus mean by this? I mean, I, yeah, I think taking up your cross means that persecution is going to come at times. 
And if they persecuted Jesus, I guarantee you they're going to persecute us. In fact, persecution for genuine followers of Jesus is more normative than not being persecuted. We actually live in a time, or in this country, we live in a time where where persecution isn't happening, and that's actually unusual in the 2,000 years of Christian history. So Jesus is saying that persecution is going to come, but our commitment to Jesus must be greater than our commitment to self-protection. Jesus is saying our commitment to him must be greater than our commitment to self-protection. So persecution, it can look like all kinds of things. It can, it can be, you know, there's low-level persecution, such as losing your job or uh, uh, maybe being re- socially rejected because of your faith. You can be imprisoned for your faith. But we can't ignore the fact that this might also require us to make the ultimate sacrifice for our faith. You know, 11 of the 12 disciples who heard Jesus make this statement went on to be martyred for their faith. And martyrdom was an ever-present reality for the early church. And it's actually, believe it or not, it may not seem this way to you, but martyrdom is still an ever-present reality for Christians all over the world today. The charity Open Doors tracks persecution worldwide. It's done so for decades. And in 2020, it was the worst year on record. I mean, 2020 was the worst year on record already, right? But here's what they found. They were able to document 4,761 martyrs in 2020, people that died for their testimony and faith in Jesus. Over 3,500 of those were in Nigeria alone. And then they went on to document that more than 340 million Christians around the world have suffered high levels of persecution and discrimination. That's incredible. Now, if you try to think about that, we're we're talking about Christians in China and India and Nigeria and Somalia and uh, all different, North Korea, places around the world where being a Christian means taking up your cross in a very literal way. And we had a really very real example of this in recent weeks with Afghanistan. (laughs) For many of these new Christians in Afghanistan, I told you a couple weeks ago that that the church in Afghanistan is actually the fastest growing church in the world because it's a small church, but it's, it's growing really quickly. And then all of a sudden, the Taliban take over. And I saw a text or a tweet from somebody who's in touch with, with um, Afghan Christians right now. And many of them ex- said, <laughs> said this, many of them expect to meet Jesus face to face in the next few weeks. For these Afghans, taking up your cross and following him is a very literal thing. They're going to be faced with the choice to deny him and save their lives or proclaim him and lose it. And this is so countercultural for us because in the UK, we love health and safety, right? Health and safety are a big deal in this culture. And actually, that's a good thing because it, it shows a value for human life and human dignity. But, but sometimes God's going to call us to risk our own safety and security in order to follow him. Christians have been doing this for centuries, whether it's, whether it's refusing to recant your faith when your life is being threatened, or whether it's risking your health to take care of those who are sick with the plague, or, or risking your life to take the gospel to those who have never heard. Christians have done this for centuries. And the point of Jesus, when he says, you got to take up your cross and follow me, means that your commitment to me needs to be greater than your commitment to self-protection. Finally, counting the cost of being a disciple of Jesus means that we've got to follow him. 
<laughs> Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And being willing to follow Jesus means being able to go wherever he leads. And we talked about this last week. You know, when you think about the context of how the rabbinical structure works, you remember rabbis, part of their responsibility was to raise up new rabbis. And so when they would spot a, a promising young man in their village who looked like they could be a rabbi, they would wait till it's that, that young man was about 15 years old, and then they'd approach him and say, hey, I'd like you to follow me and be my disciple. But this wasn't just like, hey, you just got into university, or hey, you can come attend my lectures. This was a this was an invitation to a complete change of lifestyle. A disciple would follow the rabbi wherever he went. He'd watch every aspect of their lives. Yes, he'd listen to the lectures and the teachings, but, but it was more about emulating this rabbi's lifestyle. So that meant that if you're going to be a disciple of a rabbi, you're going to have to abandon your career aspirations. You're going to have to abandon the family business that they wanted you to enter into. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to um, leave home and family and all the, the comforts of home, and now you're going to be following this man around. And that's what the disciples did. Remember how Peter said this? He said in, uh, I think he's in Matthew or Luke 18, he said, we have left all we had to follow you. And it's no different for us. When we surrender, when we follow Jesus, we're surrendering all of our ambitions, all of our hopes, all of our plans, all of our preferences and desires. Everything is submitted to Jesus because we believe that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, guides and directs our steps. He guides us. He leads us. And, and when we surrender to him, he's going to lead us maybe into some very unexpected places, you know, for me, when I was a, a, a fresher at university is when I first realized this. I remember I was at a worship service, and in, somehow in the middle of that worship service, I just had this sense that, that God was saying to me that the American dream was not for me. <laughs> That's not what he was calling me to, and instead, he had something else in store for me. And I, I didn't know what that meant at the time, but I, I just sensed that that he was telling, down, telling me to lay down my expectations of the status quo, you know, everything that my culture encouraged and emphasized for me to pursue from the time I was little. He was saying, that's not for you, and I want you to follow me into the unknown. And so, <laughs> over time, I, you know, that, that was a lot to take in, but over time, I think I, I, I eventually said yes to that. And, and Jesus was true to his word, and he led me to, uh, to go into ministry. And then he led me to, me and Lauren, to move to North Africa. And then he led us here, and he asked us to, to lead this church. And, and none of those things were on my list of uh, my, my agendas, my ambitions, my hopes and dreams for my life at that point. So when we follow Jesus, sometimes he will lead us into the unexpected. And the question is, do you trust him enough to follow? But there is good news in all of this, because <laughs> this is a sobering word that we can't skip over if we're serious about being a disciple of Jesus. But I don't want you to miss the promise that he gives us in this passage. He says this in verse 24, he says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. 
You know, in one way, it's hard to be an apprentice of Jesus. It's, it's so much easier to go with the flow and just go where the, world lead, where the world takes us. But in another sense, it's harder not to be a follower of Jesus. There's a cost for following Jesus, but there's also a cost to not follow him. We sacrifice the life that we really deep down really long for in order to just try to save and preserve our lives from this world's perspective. We, 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 we sacrifice the, the life that Jesus wants to give us, the, the hope that he wants to give us, the joy that he wants to give us, the peace that he wants to give us, the love that he wants to give us in order to just be liked. And Jesus is saying, look, if you follow me, I'm going to give you life. Remember the promise of John? Uh, he said, he said or in John 10, he says this, that he's the good shepherd. And I, I come not to steal or kill or destroy, but to give you life. And that word that he says there for life, it's zoe. It means abundant, overflowing life. That is Jesus' desire for you. So I can't tell you what's going to happen when you say yes to being a disciple of Jesus. I can't tell you what it's going to cost you. It may cost you everything. But what I can say is that it's worth it. Jesus is good. He is a good shepherd. And if you're willing to surrender your life to his lordship, he's going to lead you. He's going to empower you. He's going uh, he's, uh, he's to empower you to follow him into the unknown, no matter what comes your way. And here's the promise. He says, I will be with you always. So you're never, no matter what comes your way, you will never be alone, no matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it is. When those disciples went to their martyrdom for their faith, Jesus was with them every step of the way. So often we look at this and we think, well, I can't do that. And you're right, you can't. <laughs> But Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, and he promises to be with us every step of the way. So in choosing to be a disciple of Jesus, in choosing to deny yourself, to deny maybe your first allegiances, to make him the, the first priority of your life, to, to take up your cross and to follow him, I believe Jesus is saying to us today that you're going to find that life that you're most deeply wanting. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we hear this sober warning that you've given us, and Lord, I don't want to just skip over it. I don't want to blow it off. I don't want to minimize or dismiss it. Lord, we, we recognize that it is a sober thing that you're saying, and you're telling us this because you love us. <laughs> you're not telling us this to, to put us off, but you, you want us to understand that following you, that there is going to be a cost. And Lord, I pray that we would have the courage and the faith to just simply say yes. That we would choose to follow you no matter what comes, because as Peter said, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. God, give us the courage to say yes, to surrender all of our ambitions, all of our hopes and plans, and trust you with whatever is to come. Because it's in you that we have the life and the freedom and the forgiveness and the hope that we all so deeply need. Lord, I pray for everyone listening to this this morning, whether in here or online, Lord, that you give us the courage to follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.